Um, Cindy, LaFrance, come up, Cindy, real quick. So we're praying. We're asking, hey, did anyone receive any type of word, uh, any type of, like, picture or anything like that? Uh, Cindy uh, um, didn't hear me, even though I was speaking to the microphone or didn't want to share, um, but she actually did get something. So again, this is very simple, and so then just having her share what it is that she saw. Yeah. All I saw was a river, and I said, okay, you know, I shared it with my husband. I really feel like the river is going to flow right through this church, and the river represents the Holy Spirit. Um, we're supposed to jump in, not be afraid of it, go, just do it. He said, you know, share it for normal people. I guess I'm normal, <laughs> or maybe I'm abnormal, but yeah, that's what I feel. <laughs> okay, excellent. Thank you. Yes, Vineyard City Church, making abnormal normal. Does that sound okay? Is that hard? Not weird? Did you want to share something? Oh, <laughs> That's so funny. I got a really similar word of um, like waterfalls pouring over our heads of the Holy Spirit and washing away like burdens or just like any weight we've been carrying in the week, just like a refreshing happening today um, and just falling off our shoulders. Wonderful. You too. What? What's that? The I have no idea what it means, but I um, I saw a picture of, like, a young boy um, in a school hallway with, like, a yellow rain jacket on um, just in school, like, a young, like, maybe in, like, fourth grade, third grade, um, blonde-haired young boy in school. I don't, I don't know what that means. Could be personal. All right, and then Craig is going to come up and share something real quick with us. Just on what you were saying that, you know, the, the children, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, just to encourage all of us to continue to pray for the children of America and around the world, you know, because if they can come to know the Lord sooner in life, what a, what a help that is for their life. And also when it was raining, I thought how when the rain falls, you know, it's the, like the Holy Spirit falling upon us, it's it's so much other than your normal life, you know what I mean? When you feel the presence like we did this morning of Jesus, that's that continual otherness of God, you know. Sorry, Michael. Craig, can you come up? What the Lord has been telling me today, he has friends for us. It's not for our harm, but for our good, for his glory. So whatever things come, our way. It's for our good, no matter what it is. Amen. Okay, so uh, again, practicing and the Holy Spirit, I mean, a couple different ideas in terms of like the river, um, the rain, all of these things. So how Lord speak to us. So this is uh, Craig. He is a um, per New Testament professor out at Simpson. Um, and so he is going to kind of just share a little bit. Yeah, okay, so I, I wanted to just share, you heard me stand up a couple of weeks or a week ago, and so that would have been called a word of the Lord or a form of prophecy, and prophecy is simply inspired speech, and I just wanted to give a little context for that statement because I wasn't sure how familiar people were, um, and it's clearly started something, <laughs> which is a good thing. Um, but basically, God's very concerned that through his spirit to build up the church. And when he gave the prophecy at, um, when it was spoken out at Pentecost, he says that your people will, uh, your men and women, not just men, but men and women will prophesy. Now, there's prophecy in the Old Testament and there's prophecy in the New Testament, and they are significantly different. So in the Old Testament, primarily you had what I call capital P prophets. They are they are people that, like um, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And when these people spoke, and Moses, and when they spoke, they could literally say, thus says the Lord. 
because what they were doing was speaking the exact words of God. And if they were wrong, they got stoned. You only make one mistake as a capital P prophet in the Old Testament. That's why they are not capital P prophets in the New Testament. So when I hear someone say, thus says the Lord now, and I've been in context when people have said that, they are working from the wrong covenant. They're working from an Old Testament covenant and not a New Testament covenant. It's because God had an urgent message back then, and he did not want to be misrepresented. misrepresented. And so he spoke directly through an, an individual for the sake primarily of Israel at the time. But in the New Testament, you really have mostly what I call small p prophets. You have a couple of kind of, I mean, some of the what we have in terms of scriptures and what's been produced is really kind of a result of capital P prophets. But per se, what you have are small p prophets. In other words, when they prophesy, you have to discern what they, what, what's being said. So in terms of forms of prophecy in the New Testament, you have various kinds. And some of them are very short, like we saw today, and some of them could be very long. For example, a sermon is simply an elongated form of prophecy because the, pro, the, the preacher, who can be male or female, which is why this says women should be preachers, um, they feel that they're inspired to give a word. Now, we have to discern whether, you know, how much of that fits and that doesn't fit. But when you have a, a, a prophecy like something, does it, it's usually confirming for an individual something they are probably already knowing. But almost not very, very minimal is future predictive, Okay. But that this is what you're going to do, okay? I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm saying if that is said, then you need to make sure that there's a really strong confirmation of, what, of, of, of that action. <clears throat> so that was an interesting thing you said. You saw a young boy. Well, what's the boy, and who, whom does that remind you of? And that's worth exploring, okay? So when you're in a private setting and someone has something like that, then you, it's an easier thing to work out. But when you're in a public setting like this and someone has a word and stands up and sometimes it's a word that they explain because they've had kind of a, a picture or a vision of it or if someone stands up and speaks in tongues and they should know that someone will be able to interpret that, then in that corporate setting, that's where we are required to weigh it, okay? To discern it. Because not everything is going to necessarily always be spirit, okay? There's wheat and chafe, and some of it's just good intentions, okay? You might have the best intentions by what you say, but not necessarily what needs to be said, and it's from the spirit. Because in all of these cases, prophecy is always under the control of the person who's speaking. And the purpose for every inspired speech is for our... Um, us, for us to learn, okay, and for us to be encouraged. So it's really important after a time like this to kind of have a moment. I got three seconds, okay, and 30 seconds, okay, and I'm just about there. So just make sure, and I, I loved what happened this morning, we talk about it, and that's really our purpose, okay, because ultimately when we do this right and we don't go weird, and I have been in weird, okay, then we can have a really cool thing. And sometimes you need to decide whether you really need to say it or not because it's under your control. All right, thank you. Uh, is that helpful? Is that cool? Uh, if you have any questions, uh, you can always ask uh, Craig. Again, he's a PhD New Testament professor, so it's worth your questions. Uh, all right, Tony, you want to come up? Are we clap? You guys don't clap for me. Why are we clapping for guests? Tony, what's going on? All right, this is Tony. What's that? Oh, you got inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, excellent. All right, let's start by clapping politely for Sean, you know, so he feels, <laughs> so he feels like he belongs. 
the clicker. I was back there going, the clicker's missing. Did Jesus rapture the clicker? <laughs> I think Sean just took it. There we go. Okay, so um, we've been doing questions for Jesus for the last while, and, and every sermon we ask him a question afterward. And we wanted to give you a bit of context for why are we doing this, what does it accomplish, and the key thing that's behind questions for Jesus is desire. We also call this praying your desire. So my goal for this morning is that you figure out what desires are and how they function in your life. So we're going to start by going back to the beginning when you remember the day you came to Christ. And hopefully that was a really good day for you. Um, maybe your life was crappy and you said, I've had enough, I want Jesus. Maybe Jesus touched you with his love and you were like, I want more of this. But on that day, you got a gift from God and you just had to say yes. You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to make anything. You just surrendered your life to Jesus and said, this is yours. And he gave you the gift of new life. Now, a few days or maybe a few weeks, or in Sean's case, maybe a few years later, you figured out that you were supposed to live something out. <laughs> Sean had a really long phase of figuring this out, which is kind of fun. Um, but you got to do something about your faith. you got to live it. And I grew up Mennonite, so like we had head coverings and all the conservative. The Mennonites are sort of like the Amish, but not as weird. Um, <laughs> but I grew up in Mennonite communities with horses and buggies and the whole nine yards. Um, and my personality is kind of rule following, do it right, be good anyway. So as a kid, what I sort of figured out was, if I can make the clicker work, maybe I'm supposed to point this way. Next slide. Christianity meant this, don't do stupid stuff. So, you know, when I was a kid, don't tease your brother. Don't take your offering money and buy baseball cards. I did that. <laughs> then one day my parents figured out I had 200 baseball cards, and they were like, where did you steal this money? And I was like, well, I got it out of my pants pocket, you know, because I forgot to give my offering at church. <laughs> <laughs> They'd give me like a dime or a quarter, you know, every Sunday to put in the offering. But <clears throat> that was sort of my picture of Christianity was don't do stupid stuff. So what, what are some of the stupid stuff things that you've done, especially as a kid? Give me, I'm going to ask you lots of questions in this sermon, so you're going to have to respond to me. What's some stupid stuff you did? Uh-huh. Okay, somebody else. <laughs> okay, cheated on a test. Give me a few more. Broke your brother's toy. <laughs> Smoking at eight. <laughs> we did lots of stupid stuff. <laughs> some of it before we were Christians, some of it afterward. So when you figure out I'm not supposed to do stupid stuff as a Christian, and I'm doing stupid stuff, what's our main tool that we use to change? You repent, yeah. When you, when you have a bad habit, what, what do you apply to, to stop doing that thing that you're doing. Discipline. Discipline. Discipline, 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 discipline. We discipline ourselves. I will not get mad at the kids. I will not get mad at the kids. I will not get mad at the kids. The kids have sport, poured three cans of Pepsi on the back seat of your 67 Camaro. I will not get mad at the kids. <laughs> so... That's where we tend to go first. And yeah, there's praying and repenting and different things, but when it comes to actually changing our behavior, we say, okay, there's part of me that I have a bad habit, I'm doing something wrong, 
I'm going to oppose that with my will. I'm going to take this brute force approach. And there's a belief behind that approach that we take, and we never say it out loud, but the belief is my willpower ought to be enough to keep me from doing stupid stuff. So that's what we believe. And it comes out, you know, after you do the stupid thing, and you're like, oh, I should have known better. Why did I do that again? I had this guy who I coached, and he would do stupid stuff, and he'd come back to me the next week, and he'd say, why am I the stupidest person in the world? Why did I do this again? <laughs> so that's the idea in our heads that my will ought to be strong enough to keep me from doing stupid stuff. So now, how does that work in real life? Not so good? <laughs> Very frustrating. Sometimes discipline works. Lots of times... Not so much. If I want to discipline myself to clean out the garage this Saturday, that might work. If I want to discipline myself to not get angry at the kids, eh, low chance of success. <laughs> Different kinds of issues, it works better with practical things. It works better than emotional things. But So this willpower thing doesn't always get the result that we want. And... You know, my own testimony of this in my 20s, I was Mr. Discipline, by golly. I had my yearly goals, my monthly goals, my Bible study plan, my hour of power, seven days a week. Three days a week, I met for an hour with another guy to pray. I fasted twice a week. And by golly, if you weren't doing that stuff, you were a spiritual wimp and God couldn't use you. <laughs> I remember one time I was in this band and we were going somewhere for a concert and we had to leave at like 5 a.m. So I set my alarm for 3.30 you know, so I could have my hour of power. <laughs> my alarm didn't go off. And about 10 till 5, you know, I hear rocks hitting my window. <laughs> Tony, <laughs> it's time to leave. I was a mess that whole day. God couldn't use me because I didn't have my hour of power in the morning. And I thought that God's good will worked in my life because I did good things. And that my will ought to be able to ensure that I did good things. Um, this didn't work so good for Paul either. So you're in good company here. This is from Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. <laughs> for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. And remember the law of my members. We'll come back to that. But when I was a teenager reading this, it was like, oh yeah, Paul, you get me. I'm right with you here. I do the very thing I hate. What's wrong with me? I, oh, and I'm reading all the way through Romans 7, and the whole chapter's about this, and I'm like, oh, great, he's going to tell me how I'm supposed to do this. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, it's been done. And I was like, where's the answer? <laughs> I'm glad that you're happy, Paul, but tell me what to do here. <laughs> And Romans 8, I couldn't understand the whole set your mind on a spirit, the spirit thing. But the point is, Paul struggled with what we all do. That discipline is not enough to change us. And the brute force approach is a lot of work. And it doesn't always get great results. So, there's another way. And the other way to change starts by asking a different question... And the question is, why do I want to do stupid stuff? So instead of doing this, we're going to go back to the source and say, where does this come from? There's a reason I want to do stupid stuff. What's the reason? So I got a little video for you here of two ladies doing some real stupid stuff. And your assignment is, watch this video, and then you're going to tell me at the end, why did they do what they did here? Excuse me. I know you didn't think anyone would catch you, but you just slammed your door into my car. 
The least you can do is say you're sorry, lady. You don't have to take that tone. It's not like I'm hurting your resale value. I'm sorry. See? Like that. You can laugh. control of myself. It was like an out-of-body experience, and I was there watching this woman go insane, and the woman was me. But you know what, Hal? I'd do it all over again. It felt great. It was almost worth destroying my car. <laughs> okay, so why did those ladies do what they did? Pride? Okay. Say what? Anger, stupidity, <laughs> don't do stupid stuff. What did, what did they want when, when the lady was sitting in her car and the other lady slammed her door against it and wouldn't say she was sorry, what was she taking from the lady in the car? What? Power? Uh-huh. Take vengeance, yeah. Yeah. So they want justice. They want control. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so when the lady, you know, she says to apologize, and the other lady says, well, it's not going to affect your resale value. <laughs> what message is that sending? It's an insult. Yeah, your car is trash, you're trash. She's taking value from her. She's saying you're not valuable. And so the other person retaliates. And they're taking value and respect and justice from each other, and so they have to get back at each other. And that's a great picture of why we do stupid stuff, because there are these things in our hearts called desires for things like justice and peace and love and respect. And when they get taken from us, <laughs> because that's stuff we really need. So here's what, this is a list of 16 desires. I'll give you a minute to just absorb the. So you have physical needs 
like food, clothing, and shelter. If you don't have food, what happens? You starve, you die. Um, babies without love completely shut down. I have a friend who adopted a child from an orphanage in China, and the child had never been loved or held, and he's holding their new baby. It won't make eye contact with him. The baby never cried because it had figured out that if I cry, no one will come. No one loves me. No one will help me. And, you know, the child's now in his late 20s, but just been psychologically damaged his whole life because he didn't have love. So we can't live a healthy life without these things. And if we don't have them, we're highly motivated to get them, like the ladies in the video. And what I find is, so I was a coach for 25 years and worked with leaders. Most people's desires, they come back to one or two or maybe three things on that chart, and everything you do ultimately comes back to those things. So like for me, significance, um, peace, goodness. Being a good boy is really important to me. My wife has learned when something goes wrong, she'll turn to me now and say, you're, you're not a bad boy, Tony. <laughs> but I got a deep desire to be good. And when I feel like I'm not good, it's very, it's hard. Um, it takes my peace away. <laughs> so every one of us has stuff like that. And it affects us in even little ways. Like chores have always been really hard for me. Um, I resist them. I don't want to do them. Well, what's behind that is my deep desire for significance. If I take out the trash, next week I'll just have to do it again. And no one is going there's nothing strategic or world-changing about taking the trash out. So I'm going to do something else that does feel strategic and world-changing. Because my desire, you know, I, I had to figure out that this was really important to my wife before I could change. <laughs> there had to be something really important. <laughs> because significance is important to me. So this is how we're built. And God put this stuff in us to draw us to him. So you can find this in scripture. And uh, this is James 4, 1 to 3. And there's desire words in here. I've highlighted the places where there's a desire word. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. Favorite scripture of many Christians. Um, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, what's this passage say causes wars and fightings? What's the problem? Passions, yeah. So one possible interpretation is desires are bad. It's bad, it's bad. <laughs> so if you want something, it's bad. <laughs> so if you have that way of thinking, then your job as a Christian is to completely empty yourself and not want anything. I will not want, you know, my own home. Um, I will not want to have children. Lord, I will be celibate for you. I will not want to have sex. I will not want anything because what? <laughs> so one way to think about desires is there's a hole in your heart. That there's a vacuum. I want significance. I want love. I want belonging. What happens if you tell yourself the hole isn't there? I won't need love. <laughs> I won't need my wife to respect me. I won't need... What happens to the hole? It's still there. Yeah. We haven't done anything to the hole. We've just put a manhole cover down over top of it, and we're standing on it. <laughs> what happens when you press down your desire and try to keep a lid on it? You know, the manhole cover either sends you into orbit or six other manhole covers in other places of your life come popping out. So if your dad never said he loved you, he never said he was proud of you, he never went to your games, um, when you got bad grades, you got punished, and when you got good grades, he didn't say anything. Um, you end up with a hole in your heart. You've got a deep desire for love and acceptance and approval. 
And you can say, I don't need my dad, he's dead to me, blah, 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 blah. But what tends to happen for guys is you spend your whole life trying to prove that you're worthy of love. So you build a big business and you make a fortune to prove I'm somebody and your marriage falls apart and your kids hate you. And <laughs> but your, your desire is still there and it's still operating in your life. So is desire always bad? Let's look at these words. The first one is hedone. Looks like hedone when you transliterate it. What, what word do we get from that in English? Hedonism, yes. Hedonism is bad. And the idea of the word is physical pleasure. So is physical pleasure always bad? No. What's an example of when it's good? Say what? Chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> there is chocolate in heaven. <laughs> is, it, is it bad to sexually desire your spouse? No. Is it bad on the first day, sunny day of April to go out and lay in the grass and feel the warmth on your skin? That's physical pleasure. That's not bad. So physical pleasure isn't always bad. How about the next word, epithemeo? Um, so that word often gets translated like lust or envy or stuff like that. But Jesus had epithemeo. Uh, the word says, well, Jesus says, um, I've greatly desired to eat this Passover with you. And he actually uses the, the word twice. So with great desire I've desired is kind of literally what it says. So Jesus has desires. That word can't be all bad. And that last one, zilu uh, or zilute, um, this is the word that Paul uses when he says to earnestly desire the greater gifts. So that can't always be bad either. So, so let's go back to, to what James says, like um, in the second sentence there. You desire and do not have, so you kill. So there's two possible reasons for, I mean, the killing is a problem, right? We're all agreed on that. Um, <laughs> that's never good. <laughs> so there's two possible reasons in that sentence for why you're killing. What are they? Okay. You one is you is the desire itself. Maybe desire itself is bad. The other one is that you don't have your desire. So two options. The idea of not desiring anything didn't look so hot. So let's look at the other one. What problem if there's two problems, which one is James solving in this sentence? You do not have because you do not ask. He's solving the problem that you're empty. So in other words, what causes wars and fightings is not that you want things, it's that you have a hole in your heart that's empty. And so you do really stupid stuff to fill that hole. So what we need <laughs> is a way to fill that hole so we don't do the stupid stuff. And that's where questions for Jesus come in. They're a, a technique where we're asking God directly for our desire. That's the idea. So you say, Jesus, what do you love about me? If the whole is for peace, you say, Jesus, give me a picture. What's your peace like for me today? Uh, or if your desire is significance, maybe you say, okay, like I just sold my ministry that I've been building for 10 years and took a sabbatical and I'm writing this book and books are always like, you never know if anybody's going to like it until you actually put it out there. So I've been working on this for two and a half years. It may not sell. So my significance desire is like, uh, <laughs> and I got to come to Jesus and say, Jesus. So if this book never sells, if the thing in this world that I think will give me significance doesn't, how am I significant to you? So I'm taking my desire, and instead of attaching it to an outcome in this world, my book sells, I'm attaching it to Jesus and saying, Jesus, how am I significant to you? And Jesus says, oh, these two years have been so special to me. 
you got to, to go spend three months in my homeland, and I got to show you my lake that I sailed on and the cave. You sat in the cave that I prayed in, and, and we spent hours and hours sitting on your deck studying the arcana of my world and what I was like, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. And then I, I relocate my significance from this worldly outcome into my relationship with Jesus. And that's the key thing with desires. You were made, in Genesis, Adam and Eve walk and talk in the garden in the cool of the day, and they're na naked and not ashamed. They don't feel any shame or embarrassment, or they don't feel bad about themselves because they're in this relationship with God where their desires are filled. And one of the things that was lost in the fall was the breaking of that desire-filling connection with God, where all these things that we want... <laughs> he is actively touching. So what we're trying to do with questions for Jesus is reestablish that life connection so that I get my desire fulfilled straight from God. And just like getting saved, it's free. And all I have to do is ask. <laughs> so when I realize that I'm doing something out of a desire, I can just say, oh, Jesus, um, how are you giving me this for free? I'm over here trying to engineer some big solution to get it. <laughs> it's free from you. So, so let's try a couple examples. What are some things that you want? It can be anything. Do you want someone to show up and mow your lawn every week? Do you, what do you want? Education, okay? So if you imagine yourself, you're graduating. <laughs> if you had that education, what does it give your heart? And I'll put the I started, I finished it, success, accomplishment. You know, there could be worth in that or value, there could be significance in that. Approval. Okay. Yep. So then you when you recognize that, that wanting to be educated isn't bad. What's bad is if I think being educated is going to fill this hole in my heart. Because now what I've done, see, the, that hole is for God to fill. What happens when I take God out of the equation and put something else in there? <laughs> Nothing good. It, it's an idol. So the problem with desires is that when I ask for something that I think will give me a desire, I'm asking God for an idol instead of for him. So the fundamental shift of the cross in this is I say, okay, I need to let go of the thing that I think will give me this desire, and I need to transfer my allegiance to Jesus. And that doesn't mean that the thing is bad or that I may never do it. It just means I have to fundamentally align myself so that this comes from God. So maybe you pray, so Jesus, if I never get an education, um, how do you think I'm smart? Or, Jesus, if I never can finish this school thing, because who knows what happens in my life, how do you approve of me? And that prayer, that question for Jesus has two things in it. It has the letting go of the tie to the world and then the asking for Jesus to, to fill that hole. So somebody else, give me another example. What's something you want? A happy marriage, okay? And if you imagine yourself, you're in that happy marriage, what does it give you on that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, we tend to get a lot of desires wrapped up in the idea of marriage. So I come to Jesus and say, Jesus... How am I married to you? Um, what? Tell me how you're head over heels in love with me. And you want to experience in your relationship with Jesus what your heart longs for. So this is the key to change from within. You go back and you find the reason. <laughs> find what you want. And you say, what desires behind that? What would it give me if I had this? Or if I never get this, what does it take from me? It's kind of the same question. And then you go to Jesus and say, okay, 
I'm willing to let go of this thing and get this from you. Um, tell me how you love me. Tell me how I belong to you. Uh, and, that's, and then our change happens from the inside out. We have this idea of change that if I beat on myself enough, then maybe it will penetrate down to my heart and I'll want something different. That doesn't work so good. A better way is I change my heart and then my behavior changes. And the New Testament says that many times. Um, can a spring bring forth both fresh and salty water? In other words, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of you starts with what's in you. So if you change what's in you, you change what comes out of you. And that can take a while, but it actually works. <laughs> so one last thing I want to say on this, the, I'll go back to this passage. I think this will go back, yeah. Down there at the end, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly or harmfully um, to spend or waste it on your passions. What's that all about? I think what James is saying here is you're asking for a thing or an outcome in this world. You're a 40-year-old man, and you go out and you buy a motorcycle. <laughs> Why do you do that? What desire is behind that? Freedom, yes. The mo motorcycle represents freedom, driving out on the road with the wind in my hair, and blah, 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 blah. And so you go out and do something stupid and buy a motorcycle and not tell your wife because you have a hole in your heart for freedom. You feel trapped by your life. So instead, you go to Jesus and say, so Jesus, I've been looking at motorcycles, but what I really want is freedom. So tell me how I'm free in you. Just remind my heart. Or Jesus, what's one thing I'm free to do in you that I don't even realize that I can do? Or Jesus, what's one place where you really set me free in the past that we can celebrate today and I can experience that freedom? And then that touches my heart. But if I stay fixated on the motorcycle, <laughs> what tends to happen if you buy a motorcycle and you don't tend to tell your spouse? <laughs> yes. What happens is the first three rides you feel, or yeah, you get in the doghouse. The other thing that happens is the first three rides you feel freedom and then it breaks down. And now you're less free than you were before because now you have a motorcycle payment and you have to fix the stupid thing. So... What happens is if you attach your desire to a thing or outcome in the world, it actually works against you to keep you from getting the thing your heart really wants. So if a girl really wants to get married, she's desperate to have a relationship, what happens to her standard? <laughs> we worked with a gal once who just got saved and she was dating this guy who was an alcoholic and we were like, you're kind of unequally yoked here. <laughs> so she finally broke up with him. The next day, he came to the, her apartment, to the door, put a gun to his head, and threatened to kill himself if she didn't get back with him. So guess what she did? They got married. The week after her honeymoon, she came to us and said, guys, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. We do stupid stuff when we try to get our desires from things and objects. But God's given us a way of escape, and it's so cool because it's free. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. And your desires were meant to be filled, not disciplined, not managed, not whatever. You just ask God to fill them, and he does. So I think that's some really good news. So let's end. Think of something you want, anything, and then... Oop, put the chart back up. Look on the chart and pick a desire that that thing represents. Got it? You don't have to get it perfect. Just pick the one that seems closest. And then we're going to just ask Jesus a question, thinking of this thing that we want. Jesus, if I never have this thing that I want, how are you going to fill that desire just in our relationship? So ask him that question.
So, there you've opened yourself up for God to fill you um, for free, and you've participated in the work of the cross in letting go of the thing in the world and embracing having it in your relationship with Jesus. And I'll turn it over to Sean. Let's all give Sean one more, one more ovation for Sean, just to fill the desire. Wow, all right. <laughs> well, I said, what was my deepest desire? For Italy to win the World Cup. But then when Tony said, what if that never happens? I'm like, that's not going to happen. Um, well, what if it didn't? <laughs> I really felt like the Lord just said, um, like, I'm going to give you all of me. I think that's what he said, which is awesome. Because obviously, being a sports fan is hitting the floor and the ceiling all the time. Um, where's the clicker, Tony? Um, all right, we're going to end with communion. We do this every Sunday. Yeah. We do this every Sunday. Um, and communion is just... It's, uh, whoa, <laughs> that's not communion. Sorry, Tony. I thought, oh, I don't, if we're on Tony's slideshow, then I, I guess we can't make it to our communion. It's like, can we turn that off so we're not like looking at grenades while we're taking communion? Um, all right, so we do communion every Sunday. Uh, communion is the sign of the covenant that Jesus gave us um, before he was crucified, resurrected, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And, um, uh, the bread represents his body, which was broken for us, that uh, none of us are able uh, to be in right standing with God on our own because we're broken, we're with sin, and Jesus is the only man to have ever existed without sin, and so he allowed his perfect body to be broken for ours so that as we partake in him, that we too can have uh, or be the righteousness of God in Christ because of what he's done. And that the wine represents his blood that was poured out for us for the sins of mankind. Uh, and that when we say yes to him, we're able to uh, be in this new covenant, this promise, this relationship, this agreement with him uh, that we are born again. And uh, so if you're a follower of Christ or if you would like to start following Christ today, then the communion table is open to you. The way that we do this is that uh, we come down the center aisle and then you'll take a piece of the cracker and you'll dip it into the wine. You'll hold on to that, go around the sides here uh, and then hold on to it and we will partake together. So if you'd like to have communion, please come forward.
Lord, we thank you for this time to be able to gather together, to be able to worship you, to be able to experience you, hear from you, uh, and to just know that we're loved. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross for us, the life that you lived as an example for us, that you came back from the dead, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Mm. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Let's partake. Well, why don't we stand? I'm going to just pray a prayer of blessing over us before we go on with the rest of our day. If you did want to come forward and receive prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you, lay hands on you. If you did have any questions for Jesus, we would love to just be in that process with you um, to ask Jesus some questions with you. So again, if you wanted to come forward for prayer or anything like that, then uh, come on forward. Well, Lord, we thank you for this time to gather. We thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for the brothers and sisters to be able to journey with. God, we ask that you would continue to help us to see you. Holy Spirit, that you would continue to help us to recognize your presence in our life, to recognize the urgings and the callings and the things that you're doing in us. Lord, we ask for more of that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us and empower us to see what it is that you're doing to know that we're loved, and to be able to see the people that surround us each and every day that need to know Jesus, that want to know Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be able to be fruitful in what it is that you've called us to do. So we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.